Welcome, everybody. My name is Mikhail Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians, episode 25, The Heretics, part one, The Baha'i. On the shores of Lake Michigan, in the near north suburbs of Chicago, sits a large white temple that is so impressive it was named one of the seven wonders of Illinois. Now keep in mind, Illinois contains all the eye-popping, history-making architecture of Chicago. So, yeah, it's a pretty amazing structure, even next to things like the Sears Tower, Trump Tower, Hancock Building, and all the other Chicago marvels and landmarks. This building is the North American headquarters of the Baha'i faith, whose founder, Baha'u'llah, was once a Muslim. I spent a great deal of time at this shrine, taking in the gardens and interior and talking to some extremely friendly people, so I'm exceptionally sympathetic to this particular Islamic heresy, which is now its own religion. Now, this started as just an episode on Islamic heresies. I was just going to go through a whole bunch of them, tell you about people who kind of differed from the mainstream, but I have so much material on the Baha'i faith I'm going to give this particular heresy its own episode. Um, is it any more important than the other heresies? Maybe. They certainly have a very large following, anywhere between 5 million and 8 million adherents. That's roughly half the number of Jews in the world. So why devote an entire episode to it? It's just my favorite Islamic heresy, so I know a great deal about it. And it's by far, to me, the most interesting heresy to come out of a major religion since 12 Jews scattered out of Jerusalem to talk about a guy named Jesus. So this will be the Baha'i episode of Heretics. And later, part two will cover the Alawites, Nusayris, the Druze, the Ahmadiyya, and the Nation of Islam. I believe that'll be all. So what is it that makes the Baha'is different? What are their core beliefs, and why are they so blasphemous? Basically, the Baha'is took the Muslim idea of the oneness of God and took it another step forward, announcing the oneness of religion. There is one God and one continually evolving religion, and that religion evolves as humans evolve and are able to understand more of it. Historically, evolution was all the rage in this intellectual milieu which brought us this uh, particular heresy. The founder, Baha'u'llah, announced himself as a manifestation of God in 1863, which was four years after Charles Darwin published Origin of Species. Just something to keep in the back of your mind. This oneness extended to the races and to the sexes as well, announcing the equality of all people. This also applied to nations. There was only one nation, and so on. We'll get to more of that later. So to understand the Baha'i faith as a Christian, there are some helpful parallels to Christian history. Also, if you can, go back and listen to the episode on Shia Islam. The Baha'i faith grew out of Shia Islam, and that history is indispensable to understanding how the Baha'i came to be. Okay. Before I launch into the whole history of the Baha'i faith and Christian parallels and all that kind of stuff, um, I just want you to drill four names into your head. First name, number one, the Bob. That's B-A-B, -B, Bob, the Bob. It's a title. Number two, 
Baha'u'llah. That's Baha, like Baha, California, and Ula, like Allah, beginning with a U. Baha'u'llah. Number three, Abdul Baha. This was Baha'u'llah's son. Abdul, as in servant, and Baha, as in Baha'u'llah, or like Baha, California. And then number four, Shoghi Effendi. S-H-O-G-H-I-E-F-F-E-N-D-I. This was uh, Baha'u'llah's grandson, sort of the next generation after Abdu'l-Baha, the last super, super significant person of the Baha'i faith. So just remember those four. The Bab, Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Baha, and Shoghi Effendi. Okay, so to help reinforce those names, here are those names once again with their closest Christian parallels. This is a good way to remember them. Number one, the Bob. Think of him as John the Baptist, who is the one who foretold someone greater than himself. Number two, Baha'u'llah. This was the main character, Jesus in Christianity. Not proclaiming to be God, but remember these are rough parallels, obviously. Number three, Abdul Baha. This is Peter. If Peter had been Jesus's biological son, that is, uh, he continued the church after the death of the founder. And number four, Shoghi Effendi, another Baha'u'llah re relative, uh, but you can think of him as Paul. He wrote a lot and he clarified the faith. Now, I want to give a quick geography relating to the Baha'i faith, which started as something called Babism. This wasn't some guy named Bob. It's B-A-B. Bob means the door in Arabic. But most of this doesn't actually happen in Arabia. It happened in what was then known as Persia, what we call Iran. Remember that Iran is the center of the Shia world. And oh, do the Iranian mullahs hate the Baha'i to this day. I mean, they really loathe these people with an irrational hatred bordering on obsession. Seriously, I once listened to Baha'i speakers at a major interfaith event, and there were guys in white turbans following the Baha'i everywhere and trashing them to whoever would listen. To use resources at the Baha'i temple or similar places, the curator actually checks your ID and makes you sign in. And they're watching. Um, are the Baha'is paranoid? Maybe, maybe not. But just because you're paranoid doesn't mean someone isn't out to get you. Um, and just something to remember in case these events, you know, in a certain part of the world turn ugly. The world center of the Baha'i faith is in Haifa, Israel. Look this place up. It's gorgeous, as all their temples are. Baha'u'llah was an avid gardener, and their landscaping always reflects that. And that beautiful place sits maybe 25 miles from a Shia militia controlled by Iran with thousands of high-tech rockets. So now, Baha'i history. The birth of the Babi religion, later to become known as the High Faith, owes its existence to countless background conditions which allowed it to seed and mature. The most obvious and powerful of these conditions is the prevalence of Shia Islam in 19th century Persia, which was fertile ground for the apocalyptic visions of the Bab. In the city where the Babi religion was founded, Shiraz, 
there was a heavy Sufi influence that fostered a climate of un unorthodox thinking. The city was frequented by many dervishes during this time, and many of them fostered another important element to the background of the founding of the Babi faith, which was the Sufis stirring up of feelings of doom, apocalyptic thinking, piggybacking on pre-existing fears of Christian and European domination. Apocalyptic thinking permeated the world that the Bab stepped into. So among these apocalyptic groups were the Sheikhis, founded by Sheikh Ahmad al-Asai. Ahmad emphasized the perfect Shia and the need for a mediator between the hidden imam and the people. Now, if you don't know what that means, uh, please refer back to the Shia Islam episode. I, I can't stress that enough. A lot of this is not going to make any sense unless you have some kind of slight background in, in Shiism. So Ahmad would fill this role of the perfect Shia. Eventually, the movement concentrated on the imminent return of the Mahdi. It's a Shia apocalyptic figure. And so much so that Sheikh Ahmad's successor sent people out to find the Mahdi uh, when the Sheikh died in 1843. Now, eventually, a Sheikhi found the Bab and became the first to believe the Bab's declaration in 1844. More on that soon. The Bob was also influenced by Sheikhism through his childhood teacher and many relatives around him. So the major evolution of the Baha'i faith from Islam is as follows. Islam to Shia Islam to Twelver Shia Islam to Sheikhism to Babism to the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i calendar begins in 1844 when Ali Muhammad Shirazi, who took the title of the Bab, which is the door in Arabic, remember, declared he was the gate to the hidden 12th Imam of Shia Islam. He made this declaration to Mullah Hussein Bashrui, who was the first Babi and a Sheikhi who had been sent out to find the Mahdi. Uh, if you remember from the Shiism episode, the Mahdi is a Muslim apocalyptic figure who, along with Jesus, will bring about the end times. So 17 others joined Mullah Hussein that summer, making a total of 19 Babis, including the Bab himself. This number would prove important later on. The Baha'i calendar is 19 months of 19 days, with four extra days inserted. The Bab's main book, the Bayan, would contain 19 chapters. The Bab was able to secure many followers through his extensive Quranic knowledge. Most of his early followers were people who spent their entire lives studying, studying the Quran. <clears throat> so the Bab's success brought many powerful dissenters as well, and this eventually led to his imprisonment in 1847. While the Bab remained in prison, Mullah Hussein continued to spread this proclamation. The Shah set out to crush the Babi movement, and the result was a battle in the city of Mazandaran that Baha'is allege ended in a massacre. It was around this time the Babis widened their separation from Shia Islam. In the previous phase, in which the Bab declared only to be the deputy to the hidden Imam, again, see the Shiism episode, his followers stayed within the parameters of Islam. Babis were told to follow the Sharia, which is the Muslim holy law, and the Bab was still attempting to work within the mainstream and went over the Shah, who ruled Persia. In 1848, the second phase began, though, 
And the Bob went from deputy to the hidden Imam to just the hidden Imam. And remember that in 12er Shiism, the hidden Imam and the Mahdi are the same thing. So then the Bob replaced the Sharia with his own work as well. This was called the Bayan e Farsi. And unsurprisingly, two years of uprisings followed. You know, you can imagine the Muslim authorities really, really frowned on this type of thing. In 1850, it was finally decided that the Bab would be executed. This would be in Tabriz, where he was being held. This was intended to crush the Babi movement, which lacked a central doctrine at the time and just revolved around its leader, so they figured they could just lop the head off. This incident has made its way into Baha'i folklore because the Bab allegedly disappeared into thin air when the first firing squad attempted to shoot him. He was later found and executed successfully, though. Um, and the event, we know this actually happened. The event made it into the report of the British Prime Minister at Tehran. That British minister said, quote, When the smoke and dust cleared away after the volley, Bob was not to be seen, and the populace proclaimed that he had ascended to the skies. The balls had broken the ropes by which he was bound, but he was dragged from the recess where after some search he was discovered and then shot. End quote. Bob was dead, and the head of the movement had been chopped off. But the Bobbies remained defiant, attempting to kill the Shah in 1852 in a move that would bring swift destruction to the Bobby community. Bobby leaders were executed, and many were arrested. One of these was a Babi in his mid-30s named Mirza Hussein Ali Nuri, Baha'u'llah, who would pick up the pieces and direct the Babi movement after this. So Baha'u'llah, 1817-1892, who declared himself a manifestation of God in 1863, just for some historical context that's right in the middle of the American Civil War. So Baha'u'llah, whom Baha'is believe to be the most recent manifestation of God, um, was the fourth child of a well-to-do aristocratic family. He enters Baha'i history in 1844 when he became a follower of the Bab. According to tradition, in 1844, Mullah Hussein Bushrui, at the advice of others, found Baha'u'llah and delivered a scroll to him. The scroll contained words from the Bab, and Baha'u'llah immediately became a Babi. Baha'u'llah said, quote, Whoso believes in the Quran and recognizes its divine origin, and yet hesitates, though it be for a moment, to admit that these soul-stirring words are endowed with the same regenerating power, has most assuredly erred in his judgment and has strayed far from the path of justice. End quote. That was something Baha'u'llah said, referring to the words on the scroll written by the Bab. So then Baha'u'llah became an influential Babi and helped organize the Conference of Badasht in 1848, which began the Babi's separation from Islam. Along with Quratul Ain, Baha'u'llah was a proponent of a break with Islam, and soon after Baha'u'llah would have to break with his old life as well. In 1852, Following the bungled attempt on the life of the Shah by three Babis, Baha'u'llah was imprisoned. He was released but exiled, choosing to flee to Baghdad. So Baha'u'llah reached Baghdad in April 1853, and he was joined by his half-brother, 
Sub-e-Azal. Azal was considered the leader of the movement at this time, but Baha'i sources continually emphasize that he wasn't cut out for this position. Among Baha'u'llah's criticisms of his half-brother was that he was too secluded and could not garner authority over the Babi community. So eventually, Baha'u'llah himself leaves Baghdad to live an ascetic life in Kurdistan and reconnect with his Sufi roots. But Baha'u'llah's departure and the subsequent leadership of his brother was just a catastrophe. Baha'u'llah was persuaded to return in 1856, and when he did, he did so as the recognized leader of the Babi community. He became a respected member of the city, but also made many enemies. And many of these enemy, enemies weren't able to kill him when they had the chance, something Baha'is Baha attribute to a very special skill that he had when meeting his enemies face to face. Baha'u'llah even talked away assailants while walking the streets of Baghdad at night, allegedly. But others, mainly Iranians and Shias, attempted to get him repatriated to Iran. This failed when Baha'u'llah and his followers were given Ottoman citizenship, the Ottomans controlling most of the Middle East at this time. But eventually the Ottomans yielded to Iranian pressure. Sort of. <laughs> they didn't repatriate Baha'u'llah back to Persia, but rather ended up moving him west. Now, this was just because the Shah was so insistent that there was a phantom 100,000-strong Babi army ready to invade, um, where in reality, the Babis would have been lucky to have just a few hundred men. They weren't a threat at all, but the Shah didn't really know that. So Baha'u'llah was ordered westward to Istanbul, far away from the Shah, where his alleged 100,000-strong army could not threaten anybody. Before he left, though, one of the most important events in Baha'i history took place. Starting on April 22nd, 1963, over 12 days in the Garden of Ridvan, in what would become the holiest of Baha'i holidays, Baha'u'llah announced that he was he whom God would make manifest, as foretold by the Bab. According to Baha'u'llah's son, the announcement was made in the first day in the garden, after the declaration of the Ridvan Festival. And here's how uh, Abdu'l-Baha would describe that event. Quote, At such a time, when he appeared to have been vanquished and the Babis were in fear and grief, Baha'u'llah, with great authority, on the afternoon of the first day of Ridvan, as soon as he had entered the garden of Ridvan, proclaimed the festival and declared his mission explicitly and unambiguously. Until that day, he had not claimed to be he whom God shall make manifest. On that day, he claimed this. End quote. Baha'u'llah had turned negative to positive, misery into a festival. One could liken it to Dr. Seuss's Who's Down in Whoville singing after the Grinch had stolen Christmas. Or in a more religious context, Jesus turning death into life or Muhammad turning exile into an event so glorious and important it begins the Muslim calendar. Baha'u'llah, who had arrived in Baghdad as an ordinary Babi and then again as a reluctant leader, left the city on May 3rd, 1863 as a manifestation of God. 
After a brief three-month stay in Istanbul, Baha'u'llah and his followers were sent to Adrianople, or Edirne, to the crumbling western corner of the Ottoman Empire. It was here where Baha'u'llah's relations with his brother, Azal, remember him, took a turn for the worse. Azal attempted to poison Baha'u'llah and kill him in various other ways, and eventually Baha'u'llah issued an ultimatum to choose between him and Azal. With the exception of a handful of people, Baha'u'llah won out. And at this point, Baha'u'llah and the Baha'is became a victim of their own place of banishment. The Ottoman government began to suspect them of being a destabilizing force in the region, which was already slipping from their grasp, and the Baha'is were forced to relocate, again, to a prison in the city of Akka. That's Acre. You might remember that name from the Crusades. The conditions were harsh at first, but gradually the Baha'i situation in the city improved. Baha'u'llah was allowed to leave the prison in late 1870, when the Ottomans needed to use the prison as a barracks. This was a bittersweet moment for the Baha'is, though, because it followed the accidental death of Mirza Mahdi, who was one of Baha'u'llah's sons. Baha'u'llah spent the rest of his life either inside Acre or on the outskirts of Acre. And this time is important because this is when he did most, most of his writing. Uh, he wrote many tablets, as the Baha'is call them here. Tablets are basically articles to world leaders or to whoever. Um, and this makes up you know, a lot of their scriptural texts. But also he wrote the Kitab-e-Akdas, which is Persian for the most holy book. It was also late in Baha'u'llah's life he encountered the most famous Westerner to visit him during his lifetime. Professor Edward Granville Brown was a Cambridge University Orientalist, and though he did not become a Baha'i, he later translated a work of Abdu'l-Baha, who was Baha'u'llah's son. In the introduction to that book, A Traveler's Narrative, Brown gave his now famous description of Baha'u'llah. Quote, the face of him on whom I gazed I can never forget, though I cannot describe it. Those piercing eyes seemed to read one's very soul. Power and authority sat on that ample brow. While the deep lines on the forehead and face implied an age which the jet-blacked hair and beard flowing down in indistinguishable luxuriance almost to the waist seemed to belie, there was no need to ask in whose presence I stood as I bowed myself before one who is the object of a devotion and love which kings might envy and emperors sighed for, sigh for in vain, end quote. And keep in mind, there is a picture of Baha'u'llah if you want to look it up. Just put his name into any search engine, it will pop up. Baha'u'llah eventually died in 1892, after which um, Brown actually painted a very similar portrait of his son, Abbas Effendi, who took the name Abdul Baha. Baha's succession to his father should not have been controversial at all. He was the written successor named in Baha'u'llah's will, and yet there was still a succession controversy. A guy named Mali, Muhammad Ali, challenged Abdu'l-Baha's authority as leader and interpreter and actually managed to win over a sizable amount of Baha'u'llah's family. He lost in the end, though. 
Abdu'l-Bahá continued the expansion of the faith until his death. His major contributions include spreading the faith to the Western world, building the shrine to the Bab, and building the other Baha'i houses of worship. He personally blessed the groundbreaking of the Baha'i house of worship in suburban Chicago, mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And it is the oldest surviving Baha'i house of worship in the world. Baha'i uh, Abdu'l-Bahá appointed Shoghi Effendi, his grandson, to be his successor. So, in Shia terms, if Abdu'l-Bahá was like the first imam of the Baha'i faith, Shoghi Effendi was the second and the last person who was given singular authority over the faith. His outward appearance, um, except for the fez, was the opposite of Abdu'l-Bahá. You know, Shoghi Effendi had no beard, he wore Western clothes, and he spoke Western languages. Uh, one of his greatest achievements was the translation of many vital Baha'i scriptures into English. He was even buried in London upon his death. Similarly, Shoghi Effendi moved the faith away from an early Shia-style imam system and toward a less centralized authority over the faith. He was instrumental in building the Universal House of Justice, established eight years after his death, which is now the prime Baha'i authority. This institution is elected and consists of nine men, and only men, as the current rules state. And whenever it renders a decree, it is considered infallible, incapable of error. Shoghi Effendi died in 1957. So now I want to move forward to the faith itself. Just give an outline of the faith. Um, if Muhammad was the unlettered prophet, Baha'u'llah was the lettered prophet. The collection of Baha'i holy texts is vast, particularly when compared to the concentrated sacred books of other faiths within Abrahamic lineage. Baha'u'llah was the author of many books, but he is also estimated to have written over 15,000 tablets, and about half of these have been archived by the Baha'is. His successors were equally committed to the written word as well. Uh, Shoghi Effendi achieved similar numbers to Baha'u'llah, and Abdu'l-Bahá doubled his father's correspondence. Only a small fraction of these, though, have been translated into English and other languages. Also, unlike the three previous Abrahamic religions, there is no gap between the sacred source and what we have today. Jesus did not write the Christian scriptures, and there is an arguable gap between Muhammad, the sacred messenger, and the Quran when it was standardized and completed. Baha'u'llah, on the other hand, is the direct author of the sacred texts attributed to him, and the same is true for Abdu'l-Bahá and the Bab. The translations of the original Persian and Arabic, however, usually have the intermediary of Shoghi Effendi who is considered the divinely inspired translator of Baha'i sacred works. Currently, this infallibility is expanded to the Universal House of Justice, meaning there are five authors of sacred scripture in the Baha'i faith. The Bahab, <laughs> the Bahab, the Bab, Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Bahá, Shoghi Effendi, and the Universal House of Justice. Like Islam, the Baha'i faith professes the oneness of God. Also, like in Islam, the oneness of the community is also a central theme. 
Although in the Baha'i faith, the community encompasses every human on earth, regardless of religion. That's the Ummah. It's everybody. Racism is rejected, as in Islam, as is the superiority of one ethnic group over the other. Again, like Islam. The concept of impurity, be it people or things, was abrogated by God in the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i concept of the unity of humanity is radical, uncompromising, and expansive. Baha'is seek a truly universal and unified social system based on spiritual principles. The achievement of such a system represents the God-directed goal of human social evolution. We've seen a start to this in the United Nations, for example, at least, you know, in the temporal sense. But the Baha'i vision goes much, much further than that. In the ideal, the whole world would act as one, both militarily, for example, politically, and all that. And the smallest, poorest country would be just as important as the economically advanced nuclear-armed nations. The world body would have binding authority over all nations. So <laughs> you might call it a one-world government. Now, that's inspiring to some, but also a horrific dystopian nightmare to others. In my country, at least, that kind of talk would make about 100 million people start polishing their guns. And I can definitely see the counterpoint to this. A centralized authority governing 7 billion people would have to be, given human nature, an authoritarian regime. But a Baha'i would retort that you're looking at humanity as it is right now, not how it will be in the future. It all hinges on whether human nature can indeed change. Or perhaps, as in Star Trek, the Earth will unify to explore the galaxy and defend itself from other alien civilizations. Who knows, really? And for those of you detecting some Marxist social thought in there, that's a very good observation. I don't know whether Baha'u'llah ever read Marx, but Baha'u'llah was only a year older than Marx was and can definitely be considered his contemporary. Okay, so the Baha'is are claiming that everything is one, as noted above. It's one in the world, and it's also one in religion. And this is where the Baha'i claim begins to separate itself from previous theology and to really become unique. Um, one of the most important Baha'i terms is the concept of progressive revelation. This means that God reveals himself little by little over time, only giving human beings what they can handle at that given time in their growth. For example, one would not give a cheeseburger to a three-month-old. That child needs breast milk for formula, which is what we are given in our infancy. You would also not explain the complexities of human sexuality to a five-year-old. Instead, you would give him something to temporarily answer his or her question until the child was old enough for the actual truth. In Baha'i thought, as humanity grows older, we are able to handle more and more spiritual truths. In a way, this concept follows in the footsteps of Muhammad, who created a single monotheistic lineage. Islamic commentators have also used a similar concept, noting that Islam came to be only because humanity was finally ready and mature enough for its final religion. But the Baha'i concept applies to all the great religions, be it Abrahamic religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, etc. 
The founder of each of these religions was a manifestation of God, just as Baha'u'llah claimed to be. Just as religion is one, the same goes for manifestations of God. Baha'u'llah is no greater than Muhammad, who is no greater than Jesus, who is no greater than Buddha, etc. The idea of progressive revelation was first demonstrated by the Bab using a tree of truth as a metaphor for God's revelation to mankind, with each tree going through a cycle of birth, spring, development, development, summer, maturity, fall, and death, winter. So it's the four seasons. But instead of the end of each cycle in this theory of progressive prophecy terminating the life of the tree of truth, the spiritual process of cyclical progression in fact leads to its growth and to further maturation. So the cycle continues, but things get better. The Baha'is also preach the uh, unity of religion and science. These are not contradictory things in the Baha'i mind. This was a very important issue in Baha'u'llah's time, you know, being a contemporary of men like Charles Darwin and rationalist Islamic reformers like Sayyid Ahmed Khan. Oh, and a guy named Karl Marx. Baha'u'llah taught that religion and science are one and should not be divided. Something cannot be scientifically false and religiously true. Another big Baha'i concept is the equality of men and women. Um, Baha'u'llah spoke of the equality of men and women, but it was Abdul Baha who drove the point home in his many letters and speeches. He spoke of this concept eloquently in a speech in Sacramento, of all places. The Baha'i loved these words so much, a paraphrasing of the following is inside the main worship area of the Baha'i House of Worship in suburban Chicago. Quote, the world of humanity is possessed of two wings, the male and the female. So long as these two wings are not equivalent in strength, the bird will not fly. Until womankind reaches the same degree as man, until she enjoys the same arena of activity, extraordinary attainment for humanity will not be realized. Humanity cannot wing its way to heights of real attainment. When the two wings or hearts become equivalent in strength, enjoying the same prerogatives, the flight of man will be exceedingly lofty and extraordinary. Therefore, woman must receive the same education as man, and all inequality be adjusted. Thus, imbued with the same virtues as man, rising through all the degrees of human attainment, women will become the peers of men. And until this equality is established, true progress and attainment for the human race will not be facilitated. End quote. So, and now I want to give you a short blip on Baha'i economics. Now, I mentioned Karl Marx before. Don't confuse the Baha'is with communists. They're not communists. They, they would not be fans of Marx or any of that sort of thing. But at the same time, a Baha'i society would not be kind to ruthless capitalism. And its economic teachings are socialist in nature, not like Soviet Union socialist, but like Sweden socialist. Baha'i economics include a minimum and maximum income level, although this should not be confused with communist-style economic equality. People would not be compensated equally for everything, but the extremes of poverty and wealth would be removed. And part of this goes with another overriding theme of the Baha'i faith, a de-emphasis of pointless competition. 
Uh, education is also highly emphasized. Uh, universal education is crucial to Baha'is, not only because it's important to a just society with equal opportunity as they see it, but also because it is believed to be essential to Baha'i faith life. Baha'is are encouraged to investigate the faith for themselves, including reading Baha'i texts, and there are many, 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 many of those. And this makes literacy and critical thinking skills essential to being a Baha'i. So that's kind of a wrap of what Baha'is believe. Um, but if there are any Muslims listening, and I hope there are, absolutely everybody's welcome here. If you're listening, excellent. I love it that you're here. Um, you might be kind of thinking to yourself, but what about the seal of the prophets? How can someone be a Muslim and then turn around and say he's a prophet? Well, there is an answer to this, actually. Um, you know, there is a vast array of theological objections Islam has presented to the Baha'i faith. And the most obvious notion is the seal of the prophets, certainly, which is the finality of Muhammad's revelation. The term seal of the prophets comes from a single verse in the Quran, Surah 33, verse 40. And know, O believers, that Muhammad is not the father of any of your men, but is God's apostle and the seal of all prophets. And God has indeed full knowledge of everything. If this verse is interpreted as it has been in traditional Islam, the Baha'i faith, regarding the Quran as a holy book, is severely compromised. Baha'u'llah was certainly aware of all this. He'd have to be. Addressing the Islamic challenge in the Kitab-e-Ikan. Quote, How many are those who through failure to understand its meaning, have allowed the term seal of the prophets to obscure their understanding and deprive them of the grace of all his manifold bounties. Hath not Muhammad himself declared, I am all the prophets? Hath he not said, as we have already mentioned, I am Adam, Noah, Moses, and Jesus? Why should Muhammad, that immortal beauty who hath said, I am the first Adam, be incapable of saying also, I am the last Adam. For even as he regarded himself to be the first of the prophets, that is Adam, in like manner, the seal of the prophets is also applicable unto that divine beauty. It is admittedly obvious that being the first of the prophets, he likewise is their seal. End quote. To, I'd say, 99% of you who just heard that, all you heard was word salad. <laughs> it's hard. Um, I would suggest listening to the above statement a few times. Because at first, it makes very little sense to a non-Babi or a Baha'i reader. And it is likely very confusing to a Sunni Muslim or another reader of a traditional Abrahamic faith, like Christians. Remember that in the Baha'i faith, humanity is in constant progression. So it would make little sense in the Baha'i mind that God would perfect religion and just leave it alone. To a Christian, one could liken this to taking away Jesus but not sending the Holy Spirit. The above statement also sheds light into the uniquely Shia theology, particularly apocalyptic or millennial theology, that is necessary to understand where Baha'u'llah is coming from. Of the utmost importance to the Baha'i interpretation of the Seal of the Prophets is the concept of cyclical time, uh, 
which was of major importance to the community in which the Bobby movement was born. The Baha'is are interpreting time in both the Western and Eastern sense here. By West and East here, I'm talking about religion, Western religion in the Abrahamic tradition and Eastern religion as in Hinduism, Buddhism, etc. Western religions view time linearly. Apocalypticism couldn't exist without that. Eastern religions are more cyclical. Reincarnation, continual rebirth, etc. So what Baha'u'llah is doing here is combining the concepts. It's Western in that it's talking about linear time. Evolution wouldn't be a thing without linear time. And humans are progressing as God's religion is continuously revealed. At the same time, he is throwing in an Eastern concept of time. There really is no difference between the first and the last. If Muhammad is the last prophet, he is also the first prophet. And if there's no end, why can't Baha'u'llah be a prophet? And just to complicate things even more, even in Western thought, God himself lives outside of time. And just like God has no length, width, or depth, God does not have time either. Now, here's a similar quote from Baha'u'llah. See if this makes any more sense. Fair warning, it might not, but here it is just the same. Consider the sun. Were it to say now, I am the sun of yesterday, it would speak the truth. And should it, bearing the sequence of time in mind, claim to be other than that sun, it would still speak the truth. In like manner, if it be said that all the days are but one and the same, it is correct and true. And if it be said, with respect to their particular names and designations, that they differ, that again is true. For though they are the same, yet one doth recognize in each a separate designation, a specific attribute, a particular character. Conceive accordingly the distinction, variation, and unity characteristic of the various manifestations of holiness, that thou mayest comprehend the illusions made by the creator of all names and attributes to the mysteries of distinction and unity, and discover the answer to thy question as to why that everlasting beauty should have, at sundry times, called himself by different names and different titles. Tell this guy was a Sufi. That's some brain-melting stuff. And again, like with the previous one, try listening to it maybe 10 times. You may get it, you may not. I don't even fully get it, to be perfectly honest. But there are also more practical explanations for having prophets after Muhammad with Baha'is noting that the seal of the prophets, as understood currently by Islam, is misguided in their view. They would argue that the seal in question was more of a stamp of approval than an ending, and God reaffirming the quality of Muhammad's character. The passage in question is God giving Muhammad permission to marry his daughter-in-law, who had divorced his adopted son, Zaid, and explaining that this is not, even in the technical sense, incest. And I've seen some convincing arguments parsing through the Arabic that the Baha'i argument is not crazy, not as crazy as it seems on the surface. That could be a future podcast. But few Muslims buy the Baha'i argument, uh, which should not come as a shock. And if you don't, again, to the Muslims listening, I totally understand. 
it's very understandable that the Baha'is have always had a frosty reception from the Muslim world. Um, the Baha'is have been rejected in the mainstream Muslim world theologically, for sure, experiencing the same difficulties that unregistered or minority religions often share in the Middle East and in the wider Muslim world. Uh, for example, of the 20 countries with the largest Baha'i populations, only two of them, Pakistan and Iran, are nations which historically have had overwhelming Muslim majorities. The Iranian community still persists in the religion's birthplace despite great opposition from the current uh, regime and with a history of brutal oppression. Most estimates place the Iranian Baha'i population at around 300,000 which makes them the theocracy's largest religious minority. The Baha'i population dwarfs the combined populace of the or other three religious minorities in Iran, the official ones, which are Zoroastrianism, Judaism, and Christianity. And Iran's Baha'i population is still the third largest in the world behind India and the United States. Um, an objection to the Baha'i also isn't just theological as well, just a, a short non-religious reason why the Baha'i were so hated, especially in Iran. Um, after the Iranian revolution in 1979, it got so bad because Baha'is tended to be very educated and very cosmopolitan. Because of this, they were disproportionately represented in the government of the Shah before 1979 and in other positions of power. So they ran into the same societal forces that have been so devastating to Jews throughout the centuries. Um, so what about the Christian world? Uh, how about Christians? How have Christians received the Baha'i? Baha'is have prospered in the United States for more than 100 years. And as most Americans know, there is no better place for a heretic than the United States of America. The establishment of their North American headquarters near Chicago coincided with the first Parliament of the World's Religions in 1893. For the first half century, most Baha'is in the West were of Iranian descent, but as the number of Western Baha'is grew, so did the percentage not from Iran. This meant an inevitable encounter with Christianity, and naturally, an evangelism effort to the Christian population. Uh, the Baha'i had found some success in India when incorporating Hindu symbols and imagery, and the same adaptation would be needed to win over Christians. The role of the Bab has been likened to that of John the Baptist, and the belief in the second coming of Christ has also been a popular theme. One could also liken progressive revelation to the New Testament superseding the Old Testament, so to speak. And as a Baha'i, at least technically, you do get to keep Jesus. And therein lies the major stumbling block for converting Christians, the person of Jesus Christ. Just as the finality of Muhammad's revelation is heavily entrenched in Islam, the divinity of Jesus is a non-negotiable foundation of mainstream Christianity. In order for a Christian to become a Baha'i, you do not really get to keep Jesus, at least not in the Trinitarian sense. I suppose the Baha'is share that problem with Muslims, how can you pry a Christian away from a divine Jesus? Still, this is a fascinating religion to learn about, regardless of whether you're actually interested in converting. It's an entirely new religion happening in the modern industrial era. There's even a surviving photo of the founder. How many religions can say that? 
And if you ever have a chance to attend a Baha'i house of worship, I highly recommend it. They're very welcoming. They don't care whether you're a Baha'i or whether you will ever become one. And you may have some fascinating conversations. I know I have. This heresy stemming from Shia Islam is still going strong and probably will soon as it enters its third century. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.